Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. I'm not supposed to say this, but this Jew has not been super concerned about the rise in anti-Semitism. I know that the rates are going up. I know that there has been more anti-Jewish graffiti, more swastikas being painted on things in this country than last year and, and, and more than the year before that. I read the report out of the University of Toronto about anti-Semitism in their med school. I read this absurd editorial that ran in the Ottawa Citizen suggesting that the Holocaust was like mostly about the deaths of non-Jewish Ukrainians. And yes, of course, I'm aware of the rise in white nationalism and of all the coded anti-Jewish stuff on the internet against globalists or Soros or lizard people. I know about all of that. And I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. I know that it does. And I know that it has to be called out every time. And I try to do that. But that doesn't mean that I've ever suffered from it. The truth is, I've never been harmed by racism. I've never lost out on a job or an opportunity. I've never been discriminated against. I've never had anyone dehumanize or, or persecute me based on my ethnicity. I mean, not that I know of. I have been called some pretty nasty anti-Semitic names. I, I, I've been sent racist tweets. I've even received a few like gas chamber death threats. But I'd be lying if I said that I've ever been traumatized by any of that. I maybe even felt a little bit validated by it. I mean, it was proof of what I had been taught as a kid in Jewish school. They're out there. They hate us. They'll never stop. And they'll probably come after us again. I note the little stuff because I know that that can turn into the big stuff. But it's not like the little stuff has actually harmed me, you know? I've never suffered from microaggressions. It's the macroaggressions that I'm worried about. Being followed by a security guy in a liquor store, not an issue. Being targeted for secretly controlling the world, I'm on the lookout, always. And that's why, for the first time ever, I feel unsafe. The idea that Jews control the media is back. Kanye relit the fire. A lot of times in media, they want to single out one person and burn them to the core. That is a Zionist approach. Dave Chappelle gave it oxygen. Before I start tonight, I just wanted to read a brief statement that I prepared. 
I denounce anti-Semitism in all its forms. And I stand with my friends in the Jewish community. And that, Kanye, is how you buy yourself some time. NBA superstar Kyrie Irving helped with that too, promoting this Holocaust denial video that claims the Jews are imposters who control the media in order to oppress black people. Klansmen and Proud Boys don't scare me, but rappers, basketball players, comedians, because they're celebrities, yes, but especially because they are black celebrities. These are not rednecks with pillowcases on their heads. These are people who have experienced racism firsthand, people who have not been protected by white privilege. And they are people who happen to have millions of diehard fans, and they have incredible levels of social influence and cultural capital. Chappelle in particular worries me because he's so good at what he does. It's like somehow in this age of the comedian as the bold truth teller, the idea that it's funny because it's true has mutated into it must be true because it's funny. His Saturday Night Live monologue last November was a masterfully constructed routine filled with escape hatches and plausible deniability, but ultimately communicating the message that yes, the Jews do control Hollywood. And yes, they will use that control to destroy anyone who exposes them for that. But when Chappelle said all that, he made it funny. So he got away with it. I've been shook over this for weeks and weeks, but I haven't said much about it. And I wasn't planning to. But then Emily Nicola, host of our French language podcast, Detour, she sent me a link to a New York Times essay by the black academic Michael Eric Dyson titled Blacks and Jews Again. I was very glad that she sent it, even though I'd already read it, because I knew that what she was asking was not, have you read this? But don't you think we should talk about this? So we did. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Matthew Yu, Paul Weinberg, Don Kemble, Nicholas Clark, David Flander, Fazil Falil, Jessica Lachance, and Noah. My name is Noah, and I'm a teacher in Northern California. I support Canada Land because after listening to all the great shows over the years, I have built such a trust with the voices from Canada Land to provide great reporting, investigative journalism, and just hearing all these stories that we wouldn't have heard otherwise. The article that you shared with me, the headline was Blacks and Jews Again. <laughs> What a headline, eh? <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking about it since you shared it. Yeah. And I've been thinking about, you know, everything in the culture that prompted it with Kanye and Kyrie Irving and Chappelle. But it has not been sitting well with me. How so? I guess I feel, like, scared. Mm -hmm. I've been taught my whole life to look out for the next time it comes back. And I felt this sense of, like, this is how it could come back. That's how it could come back. Because they're superstars? Because they're superstars, because they're incredibly culturally influential, because in the case of Chappelle, all of his controversies aside, and there's a lot of people who feel unanimously that he's just completely discredited himself, there are a lot more people who feel the other way, that he has moral authority, that he's mm. a righteous truth teller. Mm. And then through the catch-22 of, so Kanye does get canceled, well, who did that? Right, the conspiracy, that it was because of uh, him being anti-Semitic that this was the last straw, essentially. Yes, but the last straw with who? Like, if I were to say a bunch of really racist anti-black things and I would lose my career over it, that is not proof that black people run the media or run the world. But, but the trap of Kanye suggesting that there is this malicious Jewish power is that if then he faces consequences for that, it proves that he was right. And that's the part that Chappelle picked up is that the Kanye incident proves something. You know, Kanye, he doesn't really have access to mainstream forums anymore, but Chappelle does. And Chappelle took his routine to 
Saturday Night Live. No one's y'all to get mad at me. I'm just telling you, this, I've been in Hollywood. This, this was just what I saw. It's a lot of juice. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> and that's sort of his punchline. Where Kanye went wrong is not wondering about that. It's wondering about it out loud. Because if you wonder about it out loud, they'll get you. He had broken the show business rules. I learned that there are two words in the English language that you should never say together in sequence. And those words are the and juice. I've never heard someone do good after they said that. And this is the part he doesn't say, but who are they who are going to get you? It's the Jews. And how could they get you? How could they get you? Well, because in fact, yes, they are a cabal. They do work together to suppress that question and to punish those who ask it. And then a figure no less than Jon Stewart, who is like revered as, as this secular rabbi, says, you know, Chappelle is right. You know, Dave said something in the SNL monologue that I thought was instructive as well, which he says it shouldn't be this hard to talk about things. And so we go from... You know, Kanye and Kyrie Irving to Chappelle to Lauren Michaels and Jon Stewart. And, and what we see is like, I guess I feel like it's a laundering process where a trope, a conspiracy theory of, of Jewish control of the media has been subtly shifted from a forbidden category to an acceptable category. Watch out or the Jews will get you. Right. So maybe I can start by saying where with me this conversation has been sitting when you're trying to get different communities who face racism, very different kind of racisms, to address the shit they're all facing together in one voice. For example, the, the debates we've been having in Quebec on, on secularism. And in that, you have Jewish community, Muslim communities, black folks all trying to work together. And I've seen for years how difficult it is to get everyone on the same page to address a common enemy, which is white supremacy. There's so many ways in which marginalized groups in North America can point fingers at each other or not have the tools to understand each other's position clearly. And that gives way to a lot of really bad, shitty takes. And those shitty takes are coming from a place of trauma, misguided disinformation coming from the very media that is also hurting your own community. <laughs> and all of that shitstorm is making it so that when it's happening in the U.S., some black folks being anti-Semitic, it's creating a lot of conversation in the U.S. And it's also having an impact in the barbershops and in the hair salons in Canada where I felt that conversation being had again and where I've seen it's also very difficult to talk about it because there is also, you know, Van Jones, for example, got on CNN and said that he was essentially apologizing for the anti-Semitism. Right. Van Jones as a black CNN host. And uh, I, I think that uh, the apology you're talking about took place when he was um, addressing a United Jewish Appeal event. When it was a drip, we did not turn it off. And now it is a flood. And I want to say to you, I apologize for the silence of my community. The silence is over. And I want to say to Kanye, who I know, yay, nay. Yay, nay. And then Van Jones got dragged. He actually took it upon himself to apologize on behalf of, quote unquote, my community for allowing an African-American icon to praise Hitler. There hasn't been silence from the black community on Kanye's anti-Semitism. A lot of black people have condemned Kanye West's anti-Semitism. In fact, when I just hosted a radio show on Friday for two hours, black folks called in and dragged his motherfucking ass up and down the whole radio show. You want to be the magical Negro, the exceptional Negro who goes around and does the good little Negro and slanders the black community to make yourself look better. This is fucking ridiculous. And I'm actually offended by that. Why are you doing this? Why do you feel a responsibility to do this? And I feel like that tells us how fraught the conversation has been, even for a lot of black women who have been on the receiving end of Kanye and Chappelle's crap. Yeah. 
for years are like, why is it that now you stop liking the guy? Why did you even like Chappelle still before he said that? Because he was going after trans people. He was going after black women. He's been going after black women. And so it's creating a lot of frustration. And I feel like, I feel like there's a need to at least ground like the 10 things you need to know before you have a conversation about anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness inside communities. That if you don't know those things, the conversation is always going to go wrong. And I think I have a list in my mind of like things that it's like really important to understand. And I feel like a lot of people, or we only know the half of it, right? We only yeah. know our half of it. Yeah. And that makes the conversation a trap. And I feel like that's why people have been so cautious, although those conversations have been happening in the last weeks in the streets and in communities. But in the media, it's been hard because nobody wants to fall in one of those very, like there's a list of traps that you can fall into and people are really careful about avoiding. There's nothing but traps, but that's maybe why this is like a special opportunity is mm -hmm. like, like there are different conversations for the inside and the outside. Mm -hmm. For the outside, I know what it's supposed to be as a Jew. Mm -hmm. uh, for the outside, it's, it's a simple line of like anybody who insinuates in any way that there's Jewish control of the media, that's just anti-Semitism and we mm -hmm. denounce it. We don't mm -hmm. bargain with it. We don't explain it. But that doesn't leave any room for the first part of the Chappelle thing, which I think was valid, which is like, look. Can I be curious about this? Can I ask mm -hmm. questions about that? Mm -hmm. And of course you can. We talk about that constantly. Mm -hmm. Jewish people talk constantly about, sometimes it's phrased as Jewish achievement and why, why this prominence. But to have that conversation externally can only be done with trust in, in a way that I'm sure is analogous. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm welcome to talk with you or any black people about black achievement in sport. And all of the different places that might take us. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's something that black people talk about. I don't know that I'm welcome in that conversation. And so it's this push and pull of frustration of like, I do want to demystify some of this stuff, at least as much as I'm able to, because I don't claim to have the answers. And I'm certainly not doing it on anyone's behalf. I don't represent anybody but myself. Yeah. The traps are, am I going to get denounced by Jewish people for like, oh, thanks a lot, Mr. Spokesman, self-appointed. And what is the conceit of this? Is this like, okay, so you're you're black and I'm Jewish, so we're going to work it out for our respective people? <laughs> like, that's not what's going to happen no, here. No, no, for sure. But maybe I can start by naming things I wish more people knew when they're trying to have those conversations. And maybe there's going to be stuff that jumps in your mind as well that you want to add from you know, like your own personal experience and culture. Sure. And I want to know when you when you say that you that you feel this yeah. in, in the barbershops and salons. Well, what what are you hearing? Because like all I have are my worst suspicions or fears based on like what people have tweeted or things like that. Yeah, you know, I hear a lot of weird philosemitism, which is in a way a way of believing some cliches about Jews, but talking about them in a positive light, which does not undo the cliches, which is like. Black people have been so disenfranchised in North America that sometimes there's like, oh, look at what they're doing. Why don't we do it too? Which entails the belief that they're doing it, you know, as a collective. It's, yeah. it's You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's this tricky thing. For example, in a lot of conversations on black wealth creation, uh, black entrepreneurs, I will hear things like Jewish folks can keep the dollars in the community and we should be able to do the same as black people as a way to create more wealth in our communities. And they're saying that in an all black room and where there is no Jewish folks present. And so, and it's reproducing cliches, but in a way that's not negative in their head. But at the same time, when you have those beliefs, it's very easy for, for those beliefs to flip in connotation the minute that there's something that you're catching in the news that makes you see those same traits differently because you had the belief in those traits to begin with. Well, it's completely consistent with the, yeah. the negative version exactly. of that. Exactly. And, the, and the most direct anti-Semitic incident in my life, which again, I won't claim is anything too catastrophic, was a barber, after he asked me, he says, oh, I'm Iraqi, what are you? And I said, oh, I'm Jewish. And he, he said, oh, you guys, I like you guys. I, I know I know what you think about us, but I like you guys because you stick together and you keep the money to yourselves. Right. And he's got a razor to my throat. And then he goes, I learned how to do this from ISIS. Just kidding. Right. That's the worst it ever got for me. But he thought he was complimenting me. Right. So that's a, that's a really great example of how that anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism can be like just two sides of the same coin. But I think it'd be important to bring it back a bit like a lot, actually, because what we're talking about now in the news cycle is just the tip of the iceberg of dynamics that go back 
for centuries, actually. And I think if we don't know that, if we don't unpack that, we don't understand the dynamics that are going on and how those are playing, and we're not able to be fair to everyone involved. I think it's really important to just start by naming the fact that the European societies that created slavery and enslavement for African people are the same European societies that had been dealing with, and I'm going to name Spain specifically because that's where it all started, right, in the Americas. Like, it's not a coincidence that the same year that Spain landed in in the Americas is also the same year that they expelled all the Jews Mm -hmm. from Spain. The same society that believed in racial purity, blood purity, and was so scared of people who had been like Jewish converts getting into their their family is the same society that invented the kind of racial hierarchies that have been structuring the Americas. And I think it's important to understand that connection and how that works. And we rarely take the time to do that. We also rarely take the time to understand that a lot of like the Jewish diasporas who were fleeing the anti-Semitism in Europe in over the centuries, some of them, especially in the Netherlands, found that the way to escape what was going on was to engage as well in the slave trade. Mm-hmm. And so those connections happened. And those, when they're brought up in a North American context in which it's built on white supremacy, it creates a lot of division and alert, a lot of blurriness in terms of where Jewish people stand. And that's another point. A lot of people have this perception as well (laughs) that all Jewish people are from Europe and they don't see the racial diversity within the Jewish people. And that there's there's this conflation in our conversations about essentially anti-Semitism and like Ashkenazi. And if you see how, you know, Israel is made up, you see all that diversity in the world and those hierarchies in the world. Are also present. That there's there's racism and shadism within the Jews of it's, Israel. It's 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 so clear when and, and in white Israel, supremacy within within Israel. It's so clear, and when you talk to Black Jewish folks, you see all of that. Then there's that whole history of Jewish people in America being so ahead of other immigrants from Europe when it came to abolitionism when it came to being anti-segregation in the South, the history of that act kind of activism in uh, movements for civil rights, there's all of that tradition as well that's often forgotten. I think it's so important to have all of that in mind to understand what's been going on in the American discourse right now because what we're saying is like the next iteration of that uh, led by people that have a very short memory of all of that and that they're saying the sometimes just there's a lot of ignorance, I would say, in a lot of the comments that people are making about that shared, intertwined, really messed up, really fucked up history that is so, once again, ripe with trauma that is also very hard to hear sometimes the other person's perspective without having our own trauma flare up in a way that just makes it impossible to listen. I don't have any time for any of it. I don't have time for it because it's just two sides of the same coin. It's the same damn thing. You hear the anti-Semitic argument, and and I've heard heard it from black people, that the the Jews are not our allies because they were involved in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. Think twice about these Jews. They're not on your side. And it it plays well into conceptions of a merchant class and usury. And then when I hear the, what is the antidote to that is like, well, no, that's not true at all. In fact, we were on your side. Right. We were your greatest champions. Right. We marched with you. I don't claim any special status or allyship for like, uh, like, how dare you? Don't you know what good friends we've been to you? Nor will I take a slightest bit of, of responsibility for the uh, the racism the Jews of history have have uh, participated in. I didn't do, I, I, I can't claim credit for the good stuff and I'm not going to take the blame for the bad stuff. And as you say, all of it assumes that we're just one thing. I don't like to hear it from Jews either when they feel betrayed by the black community for not properly recognizing our place as allies or as, as, as the pioneers of anti-racism. I got no time for that either. I guess that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is not that we should pick one or the other narrative. Mm -hmm. I'm saying that those conversations are fraught because most people are either ignorant of the full, very nuanced, complex, entire stories. Yeah. Or they're willingly trying to avoid a part of it because it suits their narrative. And so I think it's really important if we're 
trying to have conversations about anti-blackness and anti-Semitism to be able to tell the entire story, yeah. including the parts that feel uncomfortable to all sides. I think it's important to tell the entirety of it. And that's why I was just making a list of some of those things that are hard to understand for some people or for some other people. We all have our different knowledge gaps, right? Yeah. But I think it's the existence of those knowledge gaps that makes it that a person's going to say something and then they're going to step on something that was really important to acknowledge and that acknowledgement won't be done and then the person will be hurt. And so that's what I mean by that. I don't mean we need to embrace you know, all of it or identify with all of it. I'm just saying that we need to be able to know it before we speak. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. There's so much that I struggle to just like, I always want to explain certain things. So I feel mm -hmm. like there's almost this fear. It's, it's even in that New York Times piece that, you know, African-Americans and Jews have uh, competed and quarreled and jostled for attention and empathy. Huh. I guess that's true to some extent, but I feel like that's how I sense a lot of people feel mm -hmm. that Jewish people, comparatively privileged, competing for attention and empathy that we don't really need anymore. Like we don't, like that's what we're after is that we want our share of the sympathy for being victims of racism mm. and that we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to have all of the privileges of whiteness mm. and all the privileges of, of whatever relative economic success, but we still want to be considered a persecuted minority and that people who struggle with racism every day aren't having it anymore. Right. I, I feel that. And, it's interesting. And I want to like counter to that, I'm sure there's some Jewish people out there who just want some attention or just like like uh, feeling like uh, it, to be considered a victim in some way. But that is not the anti-racism that matters to me or that I was taught. Right. And this is the hard part to explain. It's not a me too thing. It's not we're victims of racism too. The Jewish experience of racism and the Jewish responsibility is not merely to protect ourselves and to never let anyone forget that we're victims of racism. We have the job of carrying with us historical knowledge of a certain kind of racism that is very different. Mm -hmm. It's very different. It's a tricky thing. In most instances, racism serves a purpose for oppressors. Mm -hmm. This is not a defense of racism, but racism is practical. Mm -hmm. If you are going to subjugate or enslave somebody, mm -hmm. 
it really helps if they're not human or if you can consider them not human or if you're simply jostling two different groups jostling for control of resources or for power in a certain situation, dehumanizing the other people on the basis of their ethnicity or whatever otherness you can come up with serves a political purpose. Mm -hmm. It justifies what you're doing to them. Most people who hate Jews have never fucking met one. Mm -hmm. We're not in competition with the people who hate us mm -hmm. almost all of the time. And the lesson of the Holocaust that we keep harping on to the annoyance of some people is not that everybody has to remember our trauma and, and oh, us, 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 nobody has ever suffered worse than us. It's that we experienced a completely impractical racism that made no sense at all for a society to just turn on a minority who were, in, in the context of Germany, like were not a power threat, we're not trying to take resources away. We're compatible and working on every side of the political spectrum. There were prominent Jews. And a society decided them. They're the issue. They're the problem. And even as they were losing a world war and being themselves annihilated, they redoubled their efforts to exterminate this other. And so the lesson that was taught to me as a Jewish child was, You've got a responsibility to the world, not just to make sure this doesn't happen again to Jews, but like there is a psychotic strain within humans. Mm. Even against their own best interests, they will pick an enemy and, and try to extinguish them. Mm. And you can't let that happen to anyone. Mm -hmm. So when I put up my hand and I say anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism still exists, I'm not trying to take any empathy or attention away. Of course from anybody else. And I don't think that that's the tradition of Jewish anti-racism. It's that we know something, we remember something. Mm -hmm. And we can't let everybody else forget that. Thank you for that. Um, it's interesting because I read the same quote in a very different way. You know, can you read the quote again? It is painful and a bit embarrassing to admit that African Americans and Jews have, for one reason or another, competed, quarreled, and jostled with each other to gain attention and empathy for our struggles and the injustices we confront. Yeah, I read this quote in a different way. I think, you know, when we say sometimes our, our trauma flare up, I think the way you interpreted that quote was about what Jewish folks were saying and are doing. But that quote is about what black people and Jewish folk have been doing And you jump to the Jewish part of it. Right. And so that's what I mean by sometimes trauma flaring up. And I feel like that quote was not pointing out one community specifically at all. But I do take everything you've said after about the, you know, thank you for sharing your thoughts on the history of anti-racism and Jewish activism on that question. But for me, when I read this for myself, what I see is a phenomenon that I've seen so many times, once again, right where I live in Montreal, where... You have people saying the wildest stuff about all groups. When it was TRC, reconciliation, I've heard some things coming from certain communities trying to be actually jealous of the attention that Indigenous peoples were getting. Nobody is actually jealous of Indigenous peoples when they say that. They're just seeing that Indigenous people are in fashion, right? Uh -huh. And they're jealous of that. And I've heard so many times. What in are we 20... talking about here? Like, you, you, oh, you're calling that a genocide? I'll show you a genocide. Is, well, is that... not necessarily. Another example, George Floyd, yeah. 2020. Like, anti-blackness was the one focus for once of a lot of leaders, a lot of people in the business world. And a lot of people feeling like, what about Islamophobia? What about this? What about that? And then the pandemic, I've heard some people in the Asian communities being like, you're talking about black people. But what about Asians? Because there was a rise also of anti-Asian racism in Canada. And I feel like all of us are so starved for having our stories heard. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I think that's what your brain did. Like <laughs> right now, it's like telling like, no, that's yeah, what you my, see is on the part. That, that's that, like, that's my story, because I don't think you've ever done that on the air before. Right. Like expressing yourself on that topic a lot. And a lot of us are starved from like spaces where we feel comfortable expressing what's our story, what's our trauma, what's our history. And we rarely get the space to do it. So when somebody else gets the space to do it, we're like, Why can't I also get a space to do it? And I don't think it's even jealousy. It's just that 
a lack of being able to identify with the majority that gets all the airspace. So we're never jealous of the people who get all the airspace. We're getting jealous of the person who gets a crumb that's a little bit bigger than us for a month. And sometimes that dynamic I've seen playing out in community, it's not existential, but sometimes it's just this little irritant that makes coalition building or actual empathy harder to build when you're like only seeing the visible part of it. Essentially, a lot of people will see the kind of remembrance that happens around Holocaust. They don't see the pain. They don't see the trauma inside Jewish communities. They will see Justin Trudeau taking a knee for mm-hmm. George Floyd, but they don't see what's been going on inside the head of every black person in that, that week. I think we need to learn to catch ourselves when we do that so that we're better able to actually hear people and not be not coming to conversations on recognition from a scarcity mindset. I think that's what we all do. I want my story heard. I want to feel understood. And we're expressing that need with a scarcity mindset because we know that there's not enough in a white supremacist society. There's not enough for all of us that creates weird jealousy and fighting where really we should all be together fighting the power. You're right. Few people have as much space as I have to say whatever I want. And even here on my show to my audience, I rarely talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Why? It feels very personal. Mm -hmm. It feels very fraught. Mm -hmm. It feels like I can't win. What am I trying to get? What am I like? I don't want to take, I don't need the attention from Mm -hmm. anyone else. I'm Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. I can only bring upon myself negative attention from either other Jewish people who feel like uh, I don't want to be represented by this guy or that I'm trying to represent them. I'm misrepresenting them when it's, I I have no interest in trying to represent other Jewish people. And criticism externally that what is it you're fighting for? What is it you don't have that you need that you need to bring these things up? Mm -hmm. So it's not, not a twinge of attention jealousy. It's only when, from the very same people in certain cases who have been successful in articulating, like I, I no jealousy when Chappelle articulates issues about anti-blackness in a way that that few others have, and for right. all of the, the the damage he's done to different groups, he must be credited with incredibly incisive, brutal satire that tells great truths in mm-hmm. in, in his work about anti-blackness. And I think you just named something that I don't think I had named that way before, but. When you talk about you're not jealous for attention, I think what's implied is that when attention, public attention, especially in media discourse, talks about Jewishness, it's not something that you want to happen because usually it's going to be in a bad way. Essentially, it's like you don't want to be like being on the spotlight. Yeah. It's not something that you imagine being something that could be positive. That's right. And here I will stumble into speaking for other Jews. I think that (laughs) Jewish people are uncomfortable. We're okay if we talk about Jewishness and and we're often defanging or making it funny. And uh, I think maybe to a fault have kind of like tried to make ourselves benign and silly for somebody who in another context like Chappelle is a champion of anti-racism in his own way. It's not a jealousy thing. It's that why did this have to come around again at us mm. when you feel like the fingers pointed at you? Yeah. It's, it's not. It's not the lack of attention. It's yeah. it's the, that that same old. It's a, it, like it feels sick. Well, uh, that that that's the kind of attention again. And that's where I do feel engaged as a broadcaster, or whatever. Like my inclination is to explain. And so now you've got these people raising questions, and then John Stewart says, "You know what? It's a good question. People should be able to ask these questions." But no one's offering any answers. The only answer that anyone's offering is Chappelle, which is an implied answer, which is like, yeah, they do control things and mm. they will fuck you up and mm. cancel you right. if you point it out. So then that I, I, I want to do three episodes on, okay, let's explain Jewish ubiquity and the many theories thereof. <laughs> and like that's uh, asking for trouble that I, you know. Yeah. And again, I reject all of it because the internal conversation amongst Jews is too often, oh, look at these amazing, and you got Freud and, and Marx and Einstein. Right. The exceptionalism. Exceptionalism. It's like, okay, well then do I have to feel any personal responsibility for like uh, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. I can't have only the good ones, you know. There are good questions to ask that there are not answers, but theories to if if we're going to talk about why Jews in Hollywood, why Jews in finance. We we can talk about those. I I don't mind talking about those things. But it's again, it's the same reason why 
we're going to very quickly get, are we going to get into genetics here? Like, and who's no. welcome to have that conversation? Well, I know that I'm not welcome to have that conversation. Yeah. No, but we could, we could add for maybe, other communities. No, for sure. But we could add maybe one element to our list of like stuff people need to know before having those conversations, I think would be the fact that that kind of like Jewish exceptionalism we just named being a big part of the history of like immigration to America, like how the borders were closed, except if you were like a really high regarded like university professors, like and how the borders were closed and how the only place actually, the one country that decided that even like the poor people in Poland and Russia and whatever, like all Jewish folks were welcome, was Haiti. And how when I visited the Holocaust Museum in, in Jerusalem, they tell you, oh, you're Haitian, you're just. Like all the Haitians are just. And that's like because of exactly that share, what you said earlier about, you know, feeling that that responsibility when you carry. Well, tell me that again. All Haitians are just. Yeah. Because Haiti was the first, like, as a republic country that welcomed. There were a lot of Jews during the Second World War escaped uh, Europe and fled to Haiti yeah. be- because that was the only country that was not turning the boats around right. like Canada was right. doing, like the U.S. was doing. And so Haiti is revered in, uh, yeah. I see, right, right. As, as a welcoming. There, there was no, yes. no, no ship of fools to Haiti, right? Yeah, there, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because as you were saying, that kind of the way you're carrying your history as a way to not just talk about or care about Jewish folks, but about all kind of anti-racism, mm-hmm. there is that same history and that same memory. Uh, that's grounded as well in, in Haitianness and in, and the, the the narrative of the, of the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. When you talk about not necessarily wanting to carry that identity out in the work that you do, there's something in that choice that when you're not a visible minority, you get to have that choice in a way that Black people don't. And I think that changes the conversation on how private or public we are about our identities, I think, in in the media. Like, that's not something I can be, like, closeted about (laughs) when people look at my hair on my own picture in the newspaper. So there's that, I think, that's important to just name in terms of how differently different communities are having those conversations and trying to behave or, or, or hold those conversations. It's important to name that. And it's also important to explore it. And, mm-hmm. and and here's a place where I feel like there's a knowledge gap or maybe just people missing each other yeah. because it's 100% true. I can be Jewish and racialized when I wish to point it out. I can just not mention it and have it sort of disappear mm-hmm. when it's something I don't want that I'm not talking about, whether purposely or otherwise. I am white. But Jewish people are a really interesting case in conversations about whiteness because I am ethnically exactly the same, an Ashkenazi Jew, as my grandfather. But he wasn't white. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't white. He was garlicky as hell. Mm-hmm. He, 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 was, uh, he spoke with a weird accent and he wore certain clothes. And, and I'm only talking about my grandfather on one side because my grandfather on the other side was – he was like a British white man almost. because mm-hmm. he, But he wasn't born one. He figured out how to do it, mm-hmm. right? So Jews have had this option that black people don't have in certain contexts, mm-hmm. in certain historical times. That's uh, right. It changes. Yeah. Our, our, our whiteness is something that happened over time that uh, is available to me that was not available to my grandfather on the more recent immigrant side, right? So I can take that as what I think mostly it is. You know, 99% yeah. it's privilege. It gives me an interesting perspective, all the benefits of whiteness and a certain perspective on whiteness. But the part that, that not a lot of people know about who aren't Jewish is that our whiteness feels conditional mm-hmm. and it feels like it's revocable. Mm-hmm. It could be taken from us at any time, and history's proven that. Yeah, and we've had crypto Jews, and we've had Jews converting and conversos, and we can say because there's this question: Why well, is it really an ethnicity and a race? Isn't it just a religion? And so there are many Jews who will say, I, "I'm not a Jew." You mm-hmm. know, presto changeo, I'm not a Jew until the oppressor decides that they're rounding up Jews. Which, and at that point, they don't give a damn what you believe or, or <laughs> like what, what, what your personal journey has taken you if it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're a Jew. Which goes back to your, your point about like feeling like you're always a hair away from that conditionality of, of, uh, of whiteness is a part of that. Yes. There is something that feels, I guess, weirdly personal in who ultimately takes that from me and turns the finger back on me and says, Jew, for it to be a black person... I guess blackness is so constructed as the antithesis of whiteness that there is not this possibility to go in it and then out. And it's not even it's not even something that's on the table. And I think that changes the conversation, too. However, 
I do think that everything you just said, you know, sometimes, you know, in sociology or in social sciences in general, we talk about like race is a social construct that changes over time and depends on power structures and blah, blah, blah. And it sounds very wordy, but I think what you just said is a great example of how that works. And it's the same thing with blackness as well. Uh, blackness in Canada, in the North America, is absolutely not the same as in Latin America, as in Africa itself. There's mm -hmm. a lot of black people in North America who would not be seen as black if you go to Africa. So it's also mobile, depending on, on geography, depending on political climate, and, and depending on, on history and time. And so that is also very important for everyone who wants to have those conversations to understand. Yeah, it's like an academic idea about race theory, but it's like lived. If, exactly. If, you know, you it, just put like, you put bones and flesh on it. And then the other thing that I think you mentioned, and I think is important that I've seen a lot in playing out in communities, it's also internal. When there is a frustration with power, which is all the time, a lot of the people who are actually doing the harm seem that they're out of reach. And so sometimes it's very easy to take on your frustration to, I guess, the lowest hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. The person that is at least perceived as upward than you, but like low enough that you can actually grab them and take them down. Because the actual people at the top, they're way too far. You don't even see their silhouettes. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like that's also part of the lateral violence that also happens inside community, in between community. It's the idea that if you can't take down the police or the state, you're going to go to a group that feels like they have power over you. And you're going to focus your energy there because maybe there you can hurt them. Maybe there... You can have a win. That's a human thing. That's not that's not a black thing. That's not a Jewish thing. That's not a Muslim thing. That's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a human thing. I mean, James Baldwin wrote about this. Like, yeah. you know, who is the man? Who is the establishment? Right. That's like a ghost, right? But you know who your landlord is. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, and that article in the New York Times was talking about the fact that a lot of the black people's landlord have been Jewish, right? So, yeah. so exactly, exactly that. No, and, and that, that can't be erased. It's like for people who are here like longer than most Jewish people to see these mm -hmm. immigrants show up and then very quickly, that's who you're paying your rent to. Uh, yeah. And you're watching and like, okay, they figured out whiteness and, they, and they're not talking so... And we can't, like we'll never be able to figure it out. So there you go back to that jealousy thing, which is not something that Jewish people is doing. It's something that white supremacy is America is doing, is doing to all of us. Yeah. And I feel like that's what scares me, is that we live in a world of, of media where there is no interest of necessarily seeking truth. It's all about getting attention. It's all about creating controversy. And it's, um, you know, the kind of like context that we're both trying to give or the kind of like experience or perspectives that we're both trying to share. Like it's not a good show in the show business sense. Yeah. Yes, of course, if you have an industry design like that, it's going to be messy. And yes, of course, if there is no space to have conversations with context and to be vulnerable. Guess, I think that's what we've been doing today, like being vulnerable. I don't think we can move forward. That pain and that hurt and that fear is only going to get worse. Yeah. And if Canaline can be a space where we do that, then that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a really interesting point because we talk about these types of uh, comedians as being edgy and risky. But with Chappelle, there's nothing edgy or risky. That was a very calculated, calibrated routine where whatever came next, it buttresses him. But this is risky. Yeah. The risk-reward ratio. There's very little to gain business-wise from opening ourselves up to the scrutiny of our own communities and hypervigilant watchdogs of racism, certainly when it comes to Jewish advocacy. But of course, there's people who, who police my content and, and, and are quick to criticize if they're for a whiff of anti-blackness, and that's fine. And we're creating a whole lot of content for, mm -hmm. for people to put a microscope to. But I think that we have to do it. I'm talking to you now because it didn't feel right to just sort of let this blow over or mm. mutate and, and metastasize into whatever it's going to be next. I think then maybe one thing we could maybe end on is the question of what is worth taking risks for? If we're taking risks, not for the clicks, not for the likes, not for the controversy, but if we're doing it to seek understanding, if we're doing it because I want more people in this country to be able to have those kind of conversations, 
And I want them to feel like they have the permission to. They can give themselves the permission to be messy and to learn and to be scrappy and to make mistakes and to be like, huh, I haven't seen it that way before. Then I feel like taking the risk is something that's not only worth it, but the responsible thing to do. Sometimes the risky thing is is the is the responsible thing to do, maybe the safest thing, ironically, on the long term. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and I think that there's a, a poignant and useful and instructive, maybe conclusionary note in, in that original Times piece you sent to me. And I'll say it differently, but it was a quote from Franz Fanon. But basically the point is, there's nobody who hates Jews who likes black people. <laughs> That's your Canada Land episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Listen, we've got a number of open positions here at our growing company, and one of them is a senior producer role for this show. If you're an audio journalist who has some experience and thinks that you could be great here, you might be. Go to canadaland.com slash jobs to check it out. If you value Canada Land, please support it. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows, ad-free, including early releases, bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites, and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, you'll be part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and our technical producer. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Cold. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get. For just $2 a month, that is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will let me serve in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.